Hi there. Hi. Hi. <laughs> that was the sound of the Science and Eternity team. This is the Science and Eternity podcast, where we explore the relationship between groundbreaking science and the human experience. This time we're going to be looking at decay, but on a universal level, we're actually going to be looking at entropy. And with me to discuss it, I have Mark Hocknell. Mark, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, please? Sure. My name is Mark Hocknell. I'm Principal Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Lincoln. Um, and I actually lead the degree in Philosophy um, there at the University. It's a degree that's been going for a couple of years now. And uh, I was brought to the University to set up that degree. And before I became a philosopher, um, I was a scientist. Um, my first subject was microbiology. And I have a uh, doctorate in uh, biochemical engineering. Uh, and then I changed subjects completely and studied theology for a little while. <laughs> I have a degree in theology as well as uh, science and I also have a doctorate in religious studies. Amazing. I think it's really good that you have uh, experience in both, both philosophy and the science area because this seems like this topic of decay or entropy uh, actually transcends the boundaries of those subject areas somewhat, doesn't it? It does, and I think it illustrates how um, scientific ideas and scientific principles have implications beyond just the mere science, and, and they, they raise really significant questions about, uh, about human life and maybe about the significance of life as well. I think leading up to this topic, uh, for us as a team, it's, it's been one of the most interesting subjects, I think, because it has immediate implications from the science through to the philosophy. Um, I think the idea of decay links strongly with suffering and it seems that in ancient literature a uh, majority of it seems to be trying to explain why suffering is so painful and if there are ways in which we can actually break free of that suffering. Um, but I realise this is a really Con complicated subject. Entropy, I think, is a very complicated idea. Mark, um, would you mind simplifying that idea for us a little bit? Simplifying a very complicated <laughs> idea. One way of expressing entropy is to say that um, is to understand it as wastefulness. Um, and and the, the idea behind that is that every, t every process that we um, engage in in life, um, whether we're, we're thinking, whether we're doing anything, all of that involves uh, using up energy, converting one kind of energy into another kind of energy. And the second law of thermodynamics says that um, that process is always inefficient. Uh, you can convert all the mechanical energy in a system to heat, but you can't do that the other way around. You can't convert all the heat energy in a system to mechanical energy or useful energy that can do work. Um, that means that whenever, whenever you do anything that involves changing energy, uh, transforming energy from one form of energy into another, uh, and that means whenever we do anything, uh, whether it's thought or action, um, we change energy. There is always waste. It's a measure of wastefulness and um, some, some scientists and some philosophers um, also think it's uh, would link it to the concept of disorder. Um, whenever something uh, releases energy, it goes from a highly ordered state to a more disordered state and a more, uh, more, a more chaotic state. Um, and so entropy is also a measure of uh, disorder and a measure of decay. And that's a universal principle in the universe. It's a law of nature, if you like. Wow. Yeah. I, I, think, I think it's, it's interesting uh, in the scientific realm, and for sure it has so many applications in engineering, uh, when we design motors or engines, knowing how much energy you can actually take out of a mm -hmm. system, actually take out of uh, a fuel or an energy source, is really significant. Um, but I, one of the things I really love is that this subject seems to uh, extend into the philosophical. So in our previous episode, we were looking at how, uh, as we get older, our memories can decay mm -hmm. with 
time. And whilst that seems like a, in some cases, a negative thing, actually, it has real positive implications. Um, but similarly, on a societal level, um, a recent study showed that only 29% of American millennials believe the country is going in the right direction. There seems to be um, this genuine uh, belief that society is perhaps decaying or getting more disordered. But conversely, there's this belief that perhaps technology um, and science will take us towards this utopia. And I I guess my question is, how do we make sense of these two realities? One, where we see uh, the world decaying on a societal level, uh, in, in a universal sense decaying, but at the same time we see uh, perhaps technology taking us towards this utopia. How do we make sense of these two quite differing ideas? I think in the 19th century, the idea that history was progressing and that history was the story of inevitable um, progress, uh, where things just kept getting better and better, was a very common idea. Um, and in the 19th century, science and technology were really just getting going. And it seemed to be that, that science and technology could answer every question that was, was coming up, of being opened up to us. And our technology was giving us new powers and control over uh, over the world around us. So it seemed like um, all, all of our problems were going to be um, behind us as new and exciting discoveries were being made all the time. So 19th century was a great time of optimism, but then the 20th century arrived uh, and that optimism quickly kind of evaporated uh, in two world wars. And, and maybe the Second World War in particular um, show, showed us that this progress wasn't all that it, it was stacked up to be. Um, perhaps the greatest symbol of, of evil um, in the, and suffering in, in, the, in the world in the 20th century was the Holocaust. Um, six million people were exterminated. And that was only possible, the, the destruction of human life on that scale was only possible because of scientific progress, because of the tools that science had given us. Um, we can reach out to space with rockets, um, we can use that same technology to deliver massive warheads and, and yield great destructive powers. And science just gives us the capability of doing both. Um, but it seems to magnify our destructive capabilities. Uh, and it's almost as if there's a pull downwards, um, as if the negative, uh, every time we make progress, um, something negative springs to life with it. Um, there's always, I think, uh, a side effect, a waste product to our, our progress. There's always, whenever we make progress, the potential to do um, harm, great harm. Uh, it's not just a human problem, I think it reflects the way the universe is. Um, in the universe, whenever there's an exchange of energy, as we've mentioned with entropy, something, whenever something happens, um, there's always wastefulness and there's always decay. There's always something negative that happens uh, as a consequence of something positive and constructive uh, that happens. It seems to me it's a universal scientific law. It's a law of nature uh, that with progress becomes the possibility of inflicting great harm and suffering at the same time. Mm -hmm. I think Stephen Hawking makes this point really strongly in A Brief History of Time um, when he says that we, we look at um, real time, there's a very big difference between the forwards and backwards directions of time. He calls it the arrow of time and the, the fact that uh, with time, things will always become disordered. He talks about, which is great for us, video content and how if you were to visualise a glass falling off a table, and smashing off the, on the floor, you would know that was moving forwards. You would know instantly that it was moving backwards if the glass reformed off the floor and popped itself back on the table. We know innately that things become 
disordered with time. In fact, it's so intuitive that it, it, to, to bring it up is, I think, quite revelatory. We see it and we, we just understand it to be true. Um, but I think it's, re it's a really different question to ask why it is that things move in that direction. And in fact, relating it to our previous episode uh, with Noreen Hasfeld, where she explores um, why our memories decay with time or why that's significant, uh, it, I find it very interesting that we remember the past, but we don't remember the future. The arrow of time, the way in which time moves from order to disorder, um, has implications both in the scientific and also in the psychological realm. Why, why do you think we have this arrow of time? Why is it that order to disorder is uh, inextricably linked to the progression of chronology, the progression of time? So if we take a, a, a simple object, let's say like a glass or, or a cup, that's quite an ordered um, object uh, and it's taken quite a lot of energy uh, to produce the object in, in that state. But if the object falls to the ground and smashes, um, and then all, some of the energy that we put into making that object is released from the object itself uh, and transformed into, into a form of heat. And the uh, orderliness of the, of the object itself uh, decreases as disorder increases. The cup is no longer this ordered object, but a disordered mass of bits. Uh, and that process is irreversible. We can take the bits and we can glue them back together again, but the object will never be the same again. It's changed forever. It's, it's different now and it's not what it used to be. Um, and I think that's not just a thermodynamic principle, I think that's a general uh, principle uh, that applies across all sorts of systems. In the 1920s, an American engineer called Claude Shannon, who uh, was quite instrumental in the invention of uh, modern-day computer technology, was working on a then-modern invention called the telephone. And he used the term entropy to describe the loss of information in a telephone signal that's sent down a copper wire. Um, once the information is lost from the signal, it's lost forever. So it really does look like the idea of entropy is a universal one, something that tells us something about the world, the universe that we live in. Um, if we link it in with sociology, uh, Kenneth Bailey writes that when I began studying the notion of entropy, it became clear to me that thermodynamic entropy was merely one instance of a concept with much broader applications. I became convinced that entropy applied to social phenomena as well. It seems to us that without maintenance, individuals and societies can tend towards disorder. There's a philosopher called John Gray who says that human life as a whole is not a cumulative activity. What is gained in our one generation may be lost in the next. Phones are getting better, smaller and cheaper all the time. In terms of technology, there's a continuous transformation of our actual everyday life that gives people the sense that there is change in civilization. But in many ways, things are getting worse. Um, that seems like a quite a disillusioned or apathetic way um, to see the world. But but when faced with this reality, um, you might say when staring into the void of decay um, and disorder, um, I think there are there is there is another response. There's there's apathy, but there's also um, as we've seen recently um, that millennials are voting more than they ever have done before. Um, there's a, a millennial impact report that says that our study showed that a larger percentage of millennials, 65% voted in the last presidential election than the percentage of the American public, 55% did. In the face of inevitable decay, 
is there anything that we can do? Well, actually, I think that life and the existence of life is actually dependent on, on decay. It's certainly dependent on, on entropy uh, for our very uh, processes and our existence. Um, all life, uh, in order to exist, takes um, some of the energy released from the breakdown of really complex molecules uh, which have high energy and low entropy and it uses that energy to drive its own synthetic reactions. Um, without the existence of the entropy principle, without, without the ability to capture that energy, life wouldn't exist at all. Uh, the fact that life exists at all is, if you like, a temporary um, victory against the principle of entropy. We do it by importing um, energy from outside ourselves, we, we, from outside the system. We, uh, but at the level of the universe, uh, there's nowhere to import energy from. Philosopher Bertrand Russell uh, once said that one of the biggest challenges for philosophy um, is, is that it has to come to terms with the fact that the universe will one day decay uh, to nothing and everything that exists or has existed in the universe will be utterly lost. It's meaningless. Um, and that's the big challenge, I, I think, um, for us. I think we human beings find it really difficult to um, exist without meaning. Um, it seems to be something that's inbuilt into us, that we create meaning and purpose um, for our lives and for ourselves. Um, it's just how we live. It's what we do. Um, we want to um, we want to have a positive impact on, on those around us. We want to have a positive impact on the world. Um, we look for significance. We try and give um, meaning to things. It's how science progresses. We look for patterns uh, and understanding in the world and try and figure out how things work. That's what science is all about. It's about finding the significance and the meaning of the patterns that we see. Uh, one of my favourite films um, is a Japanese film, is from the 1950s. Uh, it's, it's called Ikuru, and it's about um, uh, a middle-ranking Japanese civil servant uh, who's um, middle-aged uh, and is, has just discovered that he's got he's dying of stomach cancer. Uh, and this causes a bit of a life, uh, an existential crisis for him, as he begins to think, well, what what has been the, the meaning of his life, what has he, what has he done? Uh, and the, the film explores his, his journey as he, as he gets his diagnosis uh, until, until his death, um, as he tries to figure out what the meaning of life is. And he discovers meaning in life by doing something positive for people around him. And he devotes the last months of his life to turning a waste plot of land, uh, which is just causing a problem for the local community. He turns that plot of land, uh, or he enables that plot of land to be converted into a children's playground. Uh, and in the end, at the end of the film, he's sitting on the swings that his workers has been able to be there for the children to play. Uh, and uh, he sings a childhood song to himself. And you get the sense that he's content and he's happy. He's done something uh, that's been a positive, had a positive impact on, on his community. Uh, and he dies content. Um, and he gi he's given his life meaning. I think what he discovered, what the character discovers in the film, is that we create meaning by doing positive things, by engaging in positive project, pro projects which give positive meaning uh, to other people around us, create happiness. And that's the thing that gives meaning to life. And in a way that's pushing back the tide of disorder. It's pushing back the tide of disorder and that tide of meaninglessness and futility. Um, and that takes, I think, faith and courage. 
to do that and to take a stand. So creating meaning and purpose in life is almost an act of defiance against the universe and saying this will not do. We want to have meaning and significance. It's almost a protest against the meaninglessness of the physical laws of the universe. We're, we're more significant. We're better than that. That's fascinating. I think, uh, though, if I can be quite, uh, perhaps quite coldly logical for a second, um, when faced with even those little positive things that we're doing, those little positive things, as you've pointed out, a children's playground, the energy required to create that playground came from somewhere else. And effectively, in the process of doing that, created more, di say, disorder in the universe. Um, and my question, uh, I think this is one of the big questions that I have is, is meaning created or sought out in this scenario? So you're saying against the tide of disorder, we create meaning, um, but perhaps the reason that we create it, or if we do create it, it's because we're seeking it in the first place. Um, the implication of having that desire for meaning to me implies that at some level there is actual real meaning to be found. Not meaning that, for instance, is true for one person but not for another, but meaning that actually has a rooting, perhaps just as the law, as the physical laws of the universe are objective, are there, are, is there objective meaning to be found? And in some way, does that objective meaning provide a solution to the objective problem of disorder? I think you're right um, that we don't want to just create temporary meaning. We're looking for something that is significant and lasting. Uh, and we're not content just to protest against um, and rage against the universe. And we, we actually want to create something uh, meaningful. We want our lives to be um, significant and meaningful um, uh, for, for all time and for all eternity, rather than just us uh, creating a small project and making a positive impact in a very limited way. I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and I suspect that that, that desire uh, is something that's inbuilt in us, um, that's there f as part of our, our state of being human. Uh, it's not enough just to uh, do something positive uh, we, we seem to want more and we're always being called beyond ourselves and beyond our capabilities. Um, and I think that's a question that all of us have to um, ask ourselves ultimately. And we all have to seek and find the answer um, to that question um, ourselves. So I, th I think when we're, we're talking about creating meaning, I can't help but feel uh, creating a meaning that perhaps is meaningful just for us, in reality is something that also dies when we die. Mm -hmm. I think. I think the inevitability of decay and death is something, at least in my experience, in the way I've, I've processed this question, uh, has left me with um, two real conclusions. Either it's complete disillusionment, there is no meaning to be found and the world is just going to decay, or there's a search for something which perhaps transcends the decay of the universe, something objective, a truth. Um, and I guess it always brings me back to this question, why do we have such a strong desire to experience meaning in a world which is uh, ultimately futile? 
I think you're right. I, th I, th I think the idea that we can create meaning for ourselves and that we can gain temporary victory over the process of decay and, and loss is, is all very well. But where does that spring from? And I think inbuilt within us is, is the desire for uh, something more permanent, uh, a significance and a meaning that is longer lasting, that will outlive us, that will transcend what we are at the moment. That's a question that I think is inbuilt um, within us. And perhaps the thing that we hope more than anything is that the processes of decay uh, and, and loss don't have the final word, that there is something that we can do or there is something about us that is more significant than just this endless process of decay. Yeah, it does seem pretty universal to the human experience that we want to transcend the effects of decay. Um, and that really leaves me asking the question, uh, in the face of decay, in the face of entropy, what do we actually hope for? Thank you, Mark, so much for that. And thank you guys for listening. Uh, I really feel like we've explored a lot of quite difficult concepts today. Um, and it, whilst it has answered some questions, I think in a way it's left me asking a lot more. Um, and what I love about um, this, uh, this, uh, this subject, the subject of entropy, um, is that it links really nicely, I think, with what we're exploring next time. Um, we're going to be speaking to David Wilkinson um, about uh, the mystery of time. So if, like me, uh, you have questions and time is still a little bit of a mystery, uh, see you next time.